And Senator Graham says, why are we spending all of this money? And the answer is, we don't believe that children in America should go hungry. We don't believe that working people should be evicted from their apartments or lose their homes. We don't believe that in the midst of a pandemic, people should not be able to afford to go to a doctor. So making sure that people have those direct payments, yeah, we believe in that. We believe that if a family is struggling today through no fault of their own, having lost their income, yeah, we are going to get them a check for 1400 bucks and a family of four a check for $5,600. So seven Democrats voted against Bernie Sanders' $15 an hour minimum wage amendment to the COVID relief bill this morning. Those seven Democrats are Joe Manchin, Cinema, Tester, Shaheen, Hassan, and Carper. And then we also had independent King voting against Bernie Sanders' amendment. So we now also know something else, and that is that they never had the 50 votes in support of keeping the minimum wage in the COVID relief bill. We have these seven Democratic senators, plus Angus King, who is the independent that caucuses with the Democrats, that voted no on Bernie's amendment. So my guess is that they weren't there supporting it in the first place. So it is possible that the Democratic leadership knew this and didn't care and didn't lift a finger because they too did not want the $15 minimum wage in the COVID relief bill. Quite possible. That makes it easier for them to blame the parliamentarian, right? then they, they can look like they're saying out loud, yes, we want the $15 minimum wage to be increased, but you know, it's the parliamentarian's fault. They can, they can carry on doing that and it gives them cover. Or uh, the other side of the equation is that the progressives weren't willing to do like the harder fight, which would have been to block the bill and, and, and say, no, not gonna give you my support, not gonna give you my vote, which is what Joe Manchin did, right? And that would have forced them to come back to the drawing table and renegotiate. But I'm guessing that didn't happen because Biden and Harris didn't support it. Either way, the point remains, if progressives don't start withholding their votes on some of these things, we're not going to make any leeway because this bill on its own will be filibustered. And if it's not part of a must pass bill, it's never going to get off the ground. So uphill battle. The other part of this equation, too, is we still can have six House members uh, also refuse to withhold their vote. I doubt that's going to happen. So it's dead. It's dead. And whether we blame guys like Joe Manchin and Biden or we blame progressives for not fighting harder and doing the tough stuff, it doesn't matter. The American public is the one that's going to end up losing because we cannot continue with the low wages that we have today. The income inequality is simply too severe. All right, now before we get deeper into what we're discussing here, the budget reconciliation process is um, important to understand. So let's discuss that a little bit. We have Republicans claiming that this was not the right way to go, that it shut them out of debate, that it shut them out of being uh, part of the discussion about not having unity with them. But this is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, I think more than once we have seen Democrats try to reach across the aisle to get something done bipartisan on this. But the fact is, is they don't want to raise the $15 minimum wage and neither does a big chunk of the Democrats. But the budget reconciliation process has been used by both parties in the past to get things done. 
Um, it can only be used for bills relating to taxes and spending, which is why it's not used all the time. But it has been effectively used by both parties to do those things. I, you know, off the top of my head, the Trump tax bills was was done in budget reconciliation. The George W. Bush, even as far back as then, also tax relief done, or tax cutting done in a reconciliation. Uh, Barack Obama used the bill uh, reconciliation to pass his ACA bill. So this is something both parties has used. It's not a, a new method. It's perfectly acceptable. Um, it's just bantered about as bad by the other party when they don't want something done and bantered about as good when they do want something done. All right, so things that might also be excluded from the reconciliation process are bills that would add more than 10 years uh, to the deficit. So sometimes, uh, like you saw with the Trump tax bills, the tax cut bills, you saw that it was a temporary thing, right? Well, this is why the CBO determined that the deficit would be extended beyond 10 years. So it's, it's a temporary, not permanent thing. So, but other than that, I mean, it can effectively be used with anything related to taxes, taxes and spending. So now we've heard a lot about the bird rule this week. Uh, that basically is a provision that allows a senator to, to pull um, something out of the bill if they find it to be extraneous. And it is the parliamentarian that gets to decide what is and isn't extraneous. However, we've already discussed this. The parliamentarian is a advisory role. They're not there to protect Robert's rules of order. They're there to do the bidding of leadership. So I can say without equivocation, if Biden, Harris, Pelosi, Schumer, if, if all of these folks really wanted that $15 minimum wage as part of the COVID relief bill, we wouldn't be seeing this happening. So that brings me to the next problem. Is the problem that we have a Joe Manchin problem or is it a problem that we have a weak progressive problem? Uh, well, look, I think we have both. Obviously, Joe Manchin is conservative. He might as well be a Republican and has been in the pockets of the fossil, fossil fuel industry for years. That's a given. But I would say at this point, the progressives need to knock it off and get a spine. If Joe Manchin comes out and says, I'm voting no on this, guess what? The progressives should do the same damn thing. They have given away their power time and time again because they have chosen not to use their power. Joe Biden must pass this COVID relief bill. It's a must pass bill. There, there's no way to not pass it. So if, if all of these progressives got together and basically said, Joe, we're not gonna vote yes on this bill unless you include this provision, he would be in trouble, wouldn't he? He needs those votes. There's more progressives in office than there is of Joe Manchin's. Joe Manchin only has control and power because he's playing hardball and they're not. So I would implore at this point that the, that the progressive members of Congress, whether they're in the Senate or the House of Representatives, they need to get a spine and they need to utilize their strength by being willing to say no. And by, and by being willing to put their foot down to get what they need at the end of the day. If they don't start doing this, they're gonna be constantly controlled by the establishment Democrats and the corporate money. It's that simple. Now, part of Bernie's speech today, I wanted to point out and play this clip. Let's, let's play this clip. Using reconciliation, by the way, Mr. President, as you well know, not a new idea. When our Republican colleagues had the majority, they used reconciliation. What did they use it for? They used it for massive tax breaks for the rich. That's what they used reconciliation for. 
They use reconciliation in order to try to throw 32 million Americans off the Affordable Care Act, something that Trump was fervent about. And by one vote, Senator McCain, we prevented 32 million people from losing their health insurance through the reconciliation process. So our response is, you want unity? Well, you know what? We probably have more unity today in America around this package than anything that I can remember. Polls vary 65, 70% of the American people understand the crisis we are facing. They want us to respond. This legislation is enormously popular, not just from progressives, not from moderates, but from Republicans as well, depending on the poll, 40, 50% more Republicans support it because they can't afford to pay their rent. They can't afford to go to the doctor. They understand that government has got to help. So the real question here, and President Biden has raised this issue, is we believe in unity. We believe in bringing people together. How does it happen that when 40, 50 percent of Republicans support this legislation, we can't get one vote from Republicans here? What's going on? And the answer is, I'm afraid that my Republican colleagues have moved so far to the right that they have lost contact with the needs of working families. So I think Bernie is sort of taking a dig here at, at Biden and Harris. He is basically sort of calling them out about not wanting to get behind um, this idea of ruling over the parliamentarian. Harris could have very easily said, I overruled this, it's done and then we wouldn't be in this position, right? But she chose not to do that. So there's a reason she chose not to do that. I think it's because they don't want the $15 minimum wage in the bill, but that's what happened. And then you had the press secretary making some claim about they would need the 60 votes. Well, that's not true. If Harris had overruled the parliamentarian, they don't, they don't even look at the filibuster. It's a non sequitur. It doesn't even come into position. And in fact, the only way it would come into position is if they needed the 60 votes to overturn Harris's decision. So it would be on the opposite side. So again, this is weakness on either the part of the progressives or it's a clear indication that Biden and Harris don't want the $15 included in the COVID relief bill. And what about the criticism that some folks have put forth that it's up to the activists to come up with a plan and present the progressive elected officials with a plan? I think that's absolutely ridiculous. These elected officials were put into office to come up with their own plans and to make policy happen. Why aren't they meeting and coming up with plans in advance? For example, when uh, Nancy Pelosi was running to become Speaker of the House again, why didn't they run another candidate? Where was the squad for that? They should have come up with a plan to put something, somebody more progressive in that poll position and they should have come up with a way to, to make it happen and to fight it and to put their feet down. But they didn't do that. They just rolled over. It's just one more example, as far as I'm concerned, of them giving up their power. They're giving up their power before they even get out the door because they're not willing to fight. Awkward. Welcome. You are a rapper. You are an activist. Um, I know police reform is something you've been focusing on as well as some other things. So I wanted to discuss this Coca-Cola story for, with you. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, and um, reform is, is becoming a dirty word. And with the George Floyd Act that, you know, just passed the House, um, I'll be able to explain uh, yeah. pretty easily why. Um, but it's something that 
Angela Davis has said for years, strengthens the system itself. So, right. um, you know, similarly, when it comes to a company like Coca-Cola, um, they are doing the reform version of inclusion and diversity in their company with mandating certain um, uh, trainings for everyone that they in senior leadership put together, presumably without communicating with any of their uh, black, brown, trans, et cetera, uh, staff. Um, and with, and you know, instead of kind of fostering an environment of inclusion, um, forcing people to adopt um, these cookie cutter diversity frameworks that actually push people further toward racism and further from um, better appreciating and respecting right. their peers across racial and other lines in the office. So right. uh, it's all very connected, actually. So let's, I'm going to, let's, um, so folks know what we're talking about. I'm going to walk everyone through what Coca-Cola did and why there's a backlash to it um, from some white supremacists. And what you're saying is a very interesting point you're making. I doubt that they did did any uh, deep dive into who they had participate in that when they were putting it together. So basically, right. Coca-Cola public, publicly shared on LinkedIn Learning a series of uh, diversity training videos. Uh, one of them uh, was had some slides in it we're going to show that were basically putting up some facts and then ended with a slide that said, be less white. What they meant by be less white, however, was to be less racist. Um, one of them mentioned that by the time a child is like three or four years of age, they are uh, basically realizing that it's better to be white. And I don't think I don't think that's a controversial statement at all. I think that's probably true because you have all of these things coming at you. Right. And you're seeing that white kids have more privilege. You're seeing that black and brown folks are treated a certain way. All of those things psycho psycho psychologically affect you. Right. Anyway, so Candace Owens, of course, flipped out and tweeted about it. Um, a lot of MAGA folks got on Coca-Cola websites, social media websites, and started yelling at them. And a lot of what they were saying was quite racist, of course. And what kills me, though, is a group came up with these White Lives Matters uh, flyers that look like the Coca-Cola logo. They're red and they're white and they started putting them up places. So locally, I spoke with a uh, black church here that has now experienced massive racism from this. So the last couple of days, they've had these flyers stapled outside of the church, put up outside of the church, taken down, put up again, taken down, put up again. And I spoke with the uh, operations director there at the church and she said that she absolutely feels that they are being targeted at this point. Um, and the area that they're in, the Ventura area that they're in, is uh, definitely has some enclaves of white supremacy. There's been some neo-Nazi groups there in the past. So, you know, again, a backlash that comes out of the woodwork from what, you know, Coca-Cola is trying to do something that's inclusive work training, right? Trying to get uh, people to see diversity differently that work for the company. And maybe they went about it the right, wrong way, as you were saying, and now there's this backlash happening and it's affecting people in the real world. So um, I don't know exactly what group is putting, I've been trying to figure out what group is putting out these these uh, red and white flyers. I'm not sure who it is. It could be Patriot Front. It could be uh, 100 Hands. It could be a, you know various different groups, but I doubt that this is an isolated incident given what I'm seeing on the social media posts. Um, so you were mentioning that you thought that they went about this 
the wrong way. Um, it, well, explain that a little bit more. Not necessarily, I okay. suspect. Um, <laughs> the, I gotcha. You know, because typically big corporations do. Um, right. And I think, you know, they, from what I, the little bit that I read um, was that these were required. Um, and I know that that in and of itself. That is, is actually not true according to a Coca-Cola spokesperson. I'm not sure what the truth right. is here. So two conservatives were claiming that that was the case that, and they leaked, um, they said they leaked out this memo about it. I haven't been able to substantiate that in either direction, but the, then the Coca-Cola spokesperson said that they weren't required and mandatory. Okay. So I, I don't um, know which is true. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I don't, I don't know for certain, you know, with certainty either. Um, but more important, you know, than, than kind of making assumptions about the process that Coca-Cola, you know, engaged in to produce this, um, is you know. The reason that you're asking me in the first place is right. someone who has fought against fascism for decades now. Um, ah. oh, that's, that's great. Sorry. <laughs> Quiet. Hey, man, Hypatia pulled out my uh, my monitor here. Your dog's barking. It's pet day on status coup. My goodness. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think that what you see in interpersonal... Um, I guess microaggressions such as putting up posters is just indicative of the country that we live in. Um, you know, I'd be surprised if this Coca-Cola um, diversity training, which, you know, could be tied to these white supremacist stickers being put up oh, is yeah. directly related to an increase in racism in a particular area. Um, you know, the the church that you guys spoke with may be seeing more in this outward right. um, racist vandalism and certainly, you know, incessant um, dis misinformation and racist rhetoric from right. a president like Donald Trump can lead to increased violence against Asian people, um, you know, related to, the, to COVID, um, but really, what what all of this amounts to, from like the perspective of these, you know, White Lives Matter stickers in Coca Cola colors, is that this is, you know, symbolic of the systemic racism that exists in this country, and that ex and that it cuts across, um, you know, criminal justice, that cuts across education, healthcare, real estate. Um, education and, and every and jobs and hiring and everything else. So the, that's also why Coca-Cola um, is doing what they're doing in the first place. For about 50 years now, to one degree or another, companies, corporations have been trying to, um, you know, improve diversity for, for the sake of their profit margins. Right. They want to have a good reputation. But what, you know, more and more there's research showing that if they are, if, if employees are being forced to do something, if it is white leadership creating these trainings, if um, there's no actual respect of employees and um, safe spaces in office places and, um, you know, um, equal pay, equal uh, pay across race and gender, um, if none of these things exist, then 
doing a diversity training, if anything, is only going to increase hostilities. So that's why we talk about diversity and inclusion. Having a diverse cabinet for Joe Biden is the same as having a diverse office place if there's not a diversity of opinion and not a diversity of perspectives and people are not valued irrespective of equally irrespective of their skin color. So you mentioned the George Floyd Act that just passed the House. I want to talk about that for a second because I think this has also flown under the radar given every, we've been really focusing on this uh, COVID relief package. And I think other things have been getting passed through that we have not paid attention to. This is one of them. So the mm-hmm. George Floyd Act, what I'm kind of stunned by is it gives police, it gives police $750 million more dollars which yeah. is the exact opposite of what activists are asking for. Activists are basically saying defund the police, meaning pull out of the police budget the things that would be better served in with mental health services, would be better served by I mean, simple, simple things even as the coroner's office. Why are we sending armed police officers to let family members know when someone has passed away? That's crazy, right? There's so many things that can be pulled out of that budget that would be better served in other parts of the uh, city, other parts of the budget. So why are they giving why are they giving 750 million more to the police in a bill named after George Floyd? How is this even possible? Right. As um, the incredible Dereka Purnell, um, an abolitionist, uh, black feminist, said um, in her column for The Guardian, this bill wouldn't even have saved George Floyd. Um, The the there was this bill is very similar to these diversity trainings that on paper and you know that they they look like they're well-intentioned they look like they're trying to achieve things but because they're not um actually defunding they're not rethinking the use of police or the exorbitant funding of police and in fact as you as you said increasing funding to police um, because they're not not decarceral in nature and they're not providing resources to communities to better protect themselves and to address the root causes of crime that is not nearly as severe as the media would like you to believe it is um, it is actually just perpetuating it's 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 a new way of doing the same thing so when you look at um probation parole um house arrest and electronic monitoring these are all examples of things that were um promoted as alternatives to incarceration and yet grew alongside mass incarceration and people who might not have gone to prison and prior to alternatives to incarceration would have gone home are now still trapped in the system so we're actually expanding the carceral state and this George Floyd Policing Act is not only giving $750 million more to police to police themselves and hold themselves yeah, accountable, which is like insane. Um, which is completely insane. And I'll share a couple stats about that that okay. will really, um, you know, like hone in on this. They they are also, you know, doing things that on the again um, from the outside looking in to people who aren't well versed in this stuff looks really good so 
increasing requirements around body cams and dash cams. Um, coincidentally, as I was just joining you, um, a friend of mine, um, Alec Karakatsinis, um, who founded and is executive director of the Civil Rights Corps, just shared a, a thread with me from Twitter where he talks about how for a long time, the police have wanted body cameras. The police have wanted dash cams. And the reason why is because they can't control what is the real objective. And that is to have the power in the hands of the people, of independent journalists, of your everyday passerby, yeah. who is more and more capturing these horrific instances of police brutality on their phones. They wanna control it. So if they're the ones with the cameras, as they continue to try to push laws to make filming police illegal, they have the right, and we've seen it time and time again, they decide when to turn off the cameras. They decide, um, yeah. you know, and they're trying to connect this with new facial recognition databases right. that have been proven, Calendar. just like racial profiling of police, yeah. to disproportionately impact black and brown people. Um, all of this is a great boon to Amazon, Palantir, and even a venture capital firm backed by the CIA. Um, so then you look at, for example, from 2005 to 2018, so 13 years, 13,000 cops killed somebody. Cops kill one third of all, cops are responsible for one third of all stranger murders and kill three people every day. 13,000 over those 13 years, only 80 of them were charged with anything. Now compare that to the federal grand jury indictment rate of 99%. Um, of those 80, um, I believe that only uh, 15 were actually um, found guilty and only one was found guilty of um, a crime like murder or manslaughter. So we have just given $750 million more for cops to continue to do what they're already doing, which is protecting themselves, right. not holding themselves accountable. Um, so that's why, you know, people like me who are abolitionists, people like me who read more deeply into these laws say, as well-intentioned as it may be, you're just increasing the power of police. Yeah. You're doing opposite of what we're calling for. You're increasing funding to police. Why is it that just like people are in, at Coca-Cola or these other corporations are not asking black women, for instance, what the, their diversity and inclusion training should look like, right. why is it that these politicians and lawmakers who we've elected are not asking movement for a black lives for Black Lives and others who um, who supported the Breathe Act mm -hmm. as an alternative to this, which actually makes us safer, which right. actually holds police accountable. It's because it's a lot easier to pass through something that is going to be approved on both sides of the aisle yeah. that's just a gentler form of genocide and doesn't actually dismantle or even chip away at the racist classist system. Indeed. Uh, let's talk about the Breathe Act then in juxtaposition. What were the key differences? And let me ask you this, Awkward. Do you know um, what were the progressives that refused to vote yes on this bill in the House? I know a lot of Democrats also supported it. It had bipartisan support, meaning the George Floyd Act, not Breathe. 
I, I don't know the answer to okay. that. Um, I focused more on the meat and potatoes. The, I gotcha. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I'm a little more radical. I, I, I have very little faith in any of them. So, you know, we started this conversation with you, you know, thanking Bernie for being the best of a ton of bad. And right, like, you know, I'm yeah. not that impressed. Like, thank you, Bernie, you're the least terrible. But, you know, we elected you guys um, and you're pushing a little bit for 15 when it should be 25, you know? So I feel the same way about bills yeah. and like, like the George Floyd Act. Like, I don't care if you voted for it or not, because in reality, like there are things you could be getting behind. It's not like the Breathe Act was developed by some random person in a basement, right. um, you know, these were these are things that actual senators and and Congress people are are in favor of, but they don't have the power to get enough support from their peers. So you know it's all about yeah. politics and what is going to pass, and you know what is going to make you look like you're doing the right thing without right. upsetting your corporate donors, and and that's what is you know there's a huge prison. I mean a huge. Um, profit motive in policing and oh, incarceration. Huge. And so it's going to yeah. be hard to make any substantive changes that, you know, will because we have to get a certain number of votes from people who right. don't really care about us. Right. When you talk about abolish the police and replacing with other things, I understand what you're saying. I think a lot of folks don't and they get worried about that because they want to know that there's going to be a detective there to investigate a murder when it happens, to investigate a rape when it happens, and things of this nature. So explain uh, to folks what we are talking about replacing the police with. Yeah, um, you know, anyone who tells you that defund or abolish don't actually mean those things are either not an abolitionist, they're not part of the movement, they don't understand it, or they're lying to you. Um, when I say abolish, I mean abolish. Um, but there are some, you know, there are some things that are common misconceptions. One is that what we have now is actually working, which it's not. Um, in no other field um, would you be able to keep your job if you did it correctly 2% of the time. But cops in this country solve 2% of all major crimes. They're completely not doing what you think they're doing because of all the propaganda we've been force-fed <laughs> our whole lives. Propaganda um, is so, a thing. That's the word I use too. Yeah, absolutely. So in addition to not solving any crimes that have already happened, they don't prevent crimes. They do not stop crimes in the process of happening. If they show up at all, we see in places like Portland, Half the time, if not more, they don't bother to show up. But when they do, it's after the fact. They don't solve the crime or fix the underlying causes that will actually keep the victim safer in the future. Um, and you know when they, uh, you know when they do, um, kind of, uh, you know, show up at a situation. Um, we see in the case of a Daniel Prude or in the case of the nine-year-old that they escalate the violence. And then we have tons of research about situations like stop and frisk with minor interactions with police actually increase the likelihood of future criminality. So in every way, shape and form, cops are not doing um, what we 
think we want them to be doing now. So you, so you take that assumption out, then you also um, get over a couple other things that are misconceptions about abolition. One, that it's about absence, that it would be anarchy and people would not be held accountable. It's actually quite the opposite. Since most crimes aren't solved, um, you know, since murders aren't solved, since there's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of rape kits in um, police warehouses all over the country that no one's even bothered to test, um, through other forms of justice, we are actually in an abolitionist society held accountable more so. Um, you know, through mediation, through transformative justice, the victims and the, per uh, the perpetrators who most of the time have been victims themselves are both transformed through the process, through community service, they're both transformed. Um, you know, the person who is committing a crime most likely is doing so out of desperation. Um, That's true. And, and is then um, held responsible to repair the damage that they've caused to that community. Um, you know, prisons do not do not reduce crime. They do not rehabilitate people. Recidivism is rampant. And um, so we, we get rid of the same people that we enslaved um, at the start of this, you know, capitalist country. Um, we profit off of them by, by having them work for free or eight cents an hour. And we don't provide them with anything that they'll need to survive once they come out. So we're not making them a more functional part of society. We're not making ourselves right. safer um, because when they come out, they're the same person, only they've now been treated like an animal for the last however many years. Right. Um, so, you know, in, in that's, so that's the second thing. So we, the cops and the prisons are not doing what you think they're doing now. Um, abolition does not entail not holding people accountable. It actually means holding them more accountable in a more effective way. And the other thing that should assuage some fears is that no one is saying that this should happen overnight. In our society today, where um, we have 5% um, of the world's population, but 25% of the incarcerated population, where um, yeah. income inequality, you know, and all types of other inequalities are so extreme, where people are starving, um, you know, where white people are just as likely to do drugs and more likely to sell drugs, but the people who are in prison look very different from that. We right. can't just overnight close all the prisons and open all of the, I mean, close all of the precincts and open all of the prisons and jails. We're not prepared for that. So that's <laughs> yeah, why no, that would say, be chaotic. It would be catastrophic, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so an abolitionist is saying in step, that's why we say step one is defund, but okay. not just defund, carefully, strategically defund and reallocate. Right. So as we're, as we're reducing um, salaries to zero, as we're reducing investments in police departments to zero, we are doing other things to build up this alternative right. society so that when police salaries are at zero, um, and when we freed all of the people who um, 
can and should be freed right away when we've changed the laws so it's not um, racist and classist, mm -hmm. when we've built these alternative mechanisms for um, you know, jobs training, mutual aid, education, uh, substance abuse and mental health treatment, um, and mediation and counseling and all of these other services that would actually keep us safer, at that point, we can abolish. So there's no reason you can't support abolition down the road because you know that what is happening now, statistics don't lie, are not, you know, are not working to protect us, are not working for the people. They're working for the corporations, yeah, they're working- Protect um, private property, wealthy elites. Right. That's, I think and, that's definitely true to an extent. Yeah, and, and actually, <laughs> you know, that's, it's another, like, it's a language thing, but like, when I say it's not working, I mean, it's not working for us. I mean, it's not working for, for black women, for trans people. It is working exactly as it was intended. You know, police were created after slavery That's right. to, um, you know, when they were creating new laws that would target former slaves. Yeah, they um, were slave catchers. And they went from, you know, literally torturing and murdering black people for committing, for breaking these new laws to um, putting them in cells and, uh, and chain gangs to profit off of them. So that's why it in one way is working beautifully and reforms that just change the outward appearance of it, but still um, control and, um, and dehumanize, um, just perpetuate that, um, you know, don't actually work. That's why like when we pass laws and on any level local state or federal they need to actually chip away at the system on the road to full abolition because otherwise because it works so well for the corporations and the one percent and the white supremacists um you know doing things that don't lead us toward abolition aren't working at all all right, let me ask you this. Um, I, I hear what you're saying about the low rate of solving crime. That is definitely a true thing. Um, and I, I don't think it's controversial to state that a lot of these crimes are grounded in the failures of capitalism. That's absolutely true. If, if folks had enough, were able to you know take care of themselves, their family, and weren't wanting for things, a lot of that crime would dissipate. Um, but let me ask you this. Is there uh, some sort of best practice or some other country that has a best practice that you look to model what we, we replace this with? Like, is it just detectives doing detective work? What does that sort of look like? Yeah, um, so there would be first responders also. Um, okay. You kind of asked me that question and I didn't really get around to answering it. So, <laughs> well, I just um, think people hear abolition and they don't know exactly what that means, but they do think it's chaotic or chaos. I've right. even asked this question of many BLM activists because I would like to know what their opinion is. And a lot of them do respond that they think that that's an extreme response. But um, I think it's ex they think it's extreme. And I did at first, too, believe me, because I was like, wait, what are you going to like? We can't have murderers running around. Right. But if, well, but yeah. when you talk to somebody, you realize that there are all these things you re you would replace them with that are far more effective at actually solving crime and preventing crime than it makes sense. Right. Right. Um, Again, you know, what we have now doesn't work. And it was created by human beings. So there's no reason why <laughs> we can't cat? think. Oh, yes. <laughs> we have dogs and cats now. Um, you know, there's, there's no reason that we um, can't think outside of the prison box or the, 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 the shackles. Mm. Um, you know, there, 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 
there are alternatives. And to think that, you know, they've all necessarily been fully thought out or that every single one is going to work 100% of the time would be foolish. But since what we have now doesn't work at all, since, um, since as we said, cops solved only 2% of major crimes, since the belief, since the tough on crime rhetoric comes from um, the, you know, this collaboration with mainstream media to instill fear in us that we are misinformed and believe that prison, I mean, that, um, that murder is, is skyrocketing and prison's going to, to protect us. You know, the amount, the percentage of people, um, the percentage of like crimes committed by serial killers is, for instance, is like 0.005% or something. One third of all murders in this country um, that are committed by people you know you don't know intimately are committed by cops. So you know that like to me, to, is it to that just, high? That's wild. Wow. It is, and to just throw your hands up and be like, "Well, it sounds scary. I'm not going to do it." Is is you know is is weak to me. So you have like if you can acknowledge the facts staring at you in the face. Right. It's something else has to be done. Then it's about getting creative. It's about collaborating and coming up with all, uh, with these alternatives. And yeah, like there are a couple things we can look at, like um, you know Norway, for instance. Like there are countries, you know, out there that we can look at for like some hints. But we have to do it here.